I uh, sometimes don't think we realize how counterculture we really are. We are radicals, not in the uh, political sense of you know trying to disrupt political systems, but in the spiritual sense, looking at ourselves and others, at life radically different than the world does. And the reason we are such radicals is because our leader, Jesus, was such a radical. The amazing thing is that not only was he a radical in his day, but he remains a radical in our day. He radically confronts the ideas, the views of each age. A couple of years ago, I saw a book called The New Reformation. In this book, it looks at the Reformation of Luther and Calvin and argues that it was those were good for their day, but we need a new Reformation for our day. That one is inadequate, deficient for our day, because the Reformation that the Reformers affected was a God-centered Reformation, and what we need in our day is a man-centered Reformation. The idea is that, that, that we have come to realize in our day that the deepest need of man is not to understand God and what He wants, but to understand ourselves and, and what we want. God just kind of shifts to the side uh, from, from center stage to become a, a supportive actor in our own dramas. This book argued that this is the important next step in the evolution of religion. The writer argued that sin needs to be redefined as any act that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. Hell is redefined as loss of pride. The goal of Christianity is now self-acceptance, self-esteem, self-fulfillment, self-assertion, and self-confidence. Man's basic problem is lack of self-esteem. And the solution is to convince ourselves just how good and capable we really are. Now, most of us would reject this on the face of it. It's just stated too baldly for us to be comfortable. It's too self-focused. But quite honestly, this is the pervasive thinking in our society. This is the religion of modern America. And we too have been profoundly affected in our thinking. Fortunately for us, our Lord has spoken. He's given us his word to correct and reprove us, to, to help us see how our thinking has shifted just slightly off of where it needs to be, off of the truth. So let's take a look at one of our Lord's wonderful radical teachings in Luke 18. Luke 18, we're going to start at verse 9. <clears throat> to some who were confident, or at least convinced is, the, is what the word means, convinced of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. 
But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified, literally righteous before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, Jesus uh, told this parable to some people who were convinced of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Now, realize these were people who uh, were confident. These these were were people who carried themselves with poise and self-assertion. They had a a, a very high self-esteem. They, they, they were mature adults, and they had a very important role in society, a very important place. The, the term that uh, Luke used for uh, righteousness, righteousness means to, to measure up to the standard. They measured up. They, they were doing it right. They had absorbed the standards of their day. In fact, they were setting the standards of their day, and they were very successful at it. These people felt very good about themselves. But there was a fly in their ointment. Now, with all of their, their, their self-esteem, something wasn't working right. And that was other people. For, from their perspective, it was other people that were the problem. But Luke tells us that they looked down on everybody else. Literally, they treated others as if they were nothing. That's what that word means. To treat or view others as if they were nothing. See, they tolerated other people, but ultimately other people were not important. This is one of the biggest problems with self-righteousness. It does not produce love. It produces contempt. One of the scourges of churches is the contempt that people often feel when they visit a church. Now, somebody will come into our congregation, they'll look around and see all these people who seemingly have their act together, who seem so confident in, in themselves and their righteousness, and they'll feel just this oppressive atmosphere of contempt. Nothing suppresses the availability of the gospel more powerfully than this, and nothing should break our hearts and drive us to our knees quicker than realizing that we are affecting people this way. As we'll see a little later, we are all sinners here. And anything that we do that obscures that, anything we do to to, to bolster our self-confidence, our self-esteem, even our confidence in our right theology, anything we do that obscures the fact that we are all sinners saved by grace will have that effect on people, will make them feel contempt. And it shows that we are missing something. You see, how we view and treat others is one of God's gracious wake-up calls, warning signs. We may feel like we're doing well. We may feel like we're getting our act together. But how we view and treat others is a signal to what's really going on inside of us, what's really happening It can be very subtle. When one of my daughters does something that's wrong, does my need to 
maintain my sense of being right, of being in charge, of feeling good about myself, does that cause me to view her or treat her with contempt? And sometimes I, I, I call it righteous indignation. But when I treat her or even view her with contempt, she feels it, she knows it. Or do I humble myself and come alongside her as a fellow sin, a sinner, understanding her, setting clear discipline, yet coming alongside to, to share what I am learning about what's right, learning about life. A while back, I was sitting in a counseling session with a couple. The wife, the woman in the couple, had struggled for many years with low self-esteem. But now she was learning some things about, about how to view herself, learning to stop some of the thinking that she had been participating in that was really destructive and damaging. She was learning some good information about what a healthy marriage can and should be. These are all good things. These are all valuable to her. And she began to make changes in her own life that, that, that helped her relate to her husband in, in a more righteous way. The problem was that somehow what was going on, what was being bred in this process was a real contempt for him. And he felt it. He was doing some things that were wrong, some things that were unhealthy, that needed to be faced into and addressed. But her contempt for him showed that at least in part, her, her elevated self-esteem was really a self-righteousness that caused her to, to, to maintain her own righteousness rather than to come alongside him as, as a fellow sinner, sharing what she's learning about life and about God's Word. And she had come to the point where she felt now that she had to, 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 to get rid of him for her own self-development and her own protection. See, contempt always breeds sin. It's part and parcel of sin. Whenever we sin against another, somehow we have come to the point in our own mind, justified by, by, by a variety of means, but the, the, the bottom line is we come to believe in our own heart that our needs, our feelings, our desires, our goals are more important than this other person. Subtly what happens is our focus shifts to ourselves and to our needs rather than loving another person. We become centered on ourselves and therefore are self-centered. The scary thing is we feel good about this. We feel right about this. Well, let's uh, take a look at Jesus' parable. Because I, uh, I, I want us to see where true self-esteem comes from. I mean, the things I've just said may sound like, like, like I, 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 I'm attacking some very important things, maybe in your life. Because you have struggled with self-esteem. And you've been learning some things that have helped you elevate that. But I want you to hear from the Lord how to build true self-esteem. To really have it based on a solid ground. Rather than on deception. Rather than on our own devices. First, Jesus tells us about this Pharisee 
who was uh, in the temple praying. In a, in, a, in a wonderful economy of words, Jesus kind of shows us what this guy is like. Now, he puts it so boldly that it's hard for us to really identify. When, in our own lives, there's a, it's a whole lot more complicated. There's a whole lot more stuff going on. But Jesus cuts straight to it, to the bottom line, even in our own hearts. He says that we're told that the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Literally, it's he prayed to himself. You see, he wasn't really talking to God. Uh, God was just there as, as, as kind of the backdrop for his conversation with himself. He, he, he piously puts it in terms of thanksgiving, but his focus is really his satisfaction with himself. One of, uh, of the most destructive effects of self-righteousness is that we stop dealing with God. We're not really talking to God. We, we end up talking to a, a self-constructed image of God who is there to simply confirm our assessment of ourselves and what we're doing. We say, of course God approves of what I'm doing. I'm doing it right. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to feel good about myself. But we never stop and ask God what He thinks. We don't listen to His Word. We don't discover where true happiness is found. We don't listen to where a true self-esteem can be found. We simply spout off our opinions and assume that God agrees with them. I remember one time, uh, this was several years ago, but I still remember it vividly. man who was, was very into politics kind of saddled up next to me. And he began talking about this group that he had a lot of contempt for, this other political group. And he went on and on for about 10 or 15 minutes about how stupid and messed up they were and just, you know, thrashing them. And this whole time, it's very obvious that he thinks I'm agreeing with every word he says. And he, uh, he never once asked me what I thought. He never even gave me the slightest opportunity to disagree with him or to qualify anything he said. And when he finished, he just moved on to share his brilliant observations with someone else. And I remember specifically thinking to myself, who was he talking to? He wasn't talking to me. Uh, he didn't ask me what I thought. Uh, he was talking to himself. He was having a great conversation with himself. I just happened to be standing there. You know, sometimes, and I wonder how many times, God sits there and says, who is this person talking to? And I realized what the Pharisee was claiming about himself was good things. He said, I'm not a thief. That's good. I'm not an adulterer. I give 10% of everything I have. These are good, valuable things. Don't be a thief. Don't be an adulterer. You have a responsibility before God to give generously, sacrificially. If everyone in this congregation gave anywhere near 10% of their income, there would be an enormous amount of money to direct at the kingdom. But that's not the point. That doesn't cut to the heart of it. Especially when we start using some of these things we're doing or not doing and and comparing ourselves to others so that we can feel good about ourselves. You see, that's 
what we do. We, we choose a standard. We, we choose something that, that we value or something that, that we see as important in life. And then we pursue that. And, and, and we tr- attempt to excel in that area. And then we use that as our standard to compare ourselves with others so that we can feel good about ourselves, so that we can come to the conclusion that I am a good person. That's our goal is to be able to say, I am good. Maybe we choose kind of the classic standard. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. On a relative scale, I do more good than bad. Therefore, I am a good person. Or maybe it's the, the, the responsible adult standard that we choose. I'm a hard worker. I provide well for my family. I am successful in my, my business. Or I am devoted as a parent. I'm very careful about what my family is exposed to. Therefore, I am a good person. Maybe it's the, uh, the tolerant scale, tolerance standard. Hey, I accept people. I don't put other people down. I, 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 I'm not judgmental. I live and let live. Therefore, I am a good person. Maybe it's, it's even the uh, physical fitness scale. You know, I eat right, I jog, I have zero body fat or ever how much you're supposed to have or not supposed to have. Therefore, I should feel good about myself. For most of us in this room, probably has something to do with, with the religious standard. And I go to church, I'm involved in ministry, I tithe, I, uh, I read my Bible. Therefore, I'm a good person. You see, where's the focus in all of these? The focus in all of these is ourselves and how we compare to other people. The righteousness that matters is before God. It's His opinion. It's compared to Him. And if we ever dare compare ourselves with Him, we will find the truth of the Scripture that there is none righteous, not one. That no one is good except God alone. It's what Scripture teaches clearly, forcefully. It's what we discover if we look honestly. And that leads us to, to the second person in the parable, the tax gatherer. Now, a tax gatherer was synonymous in those days for a sinner. It was somebody that everybody in all of society looked down on. And we don't really have that category in our society, somebody who is universally uh, despised. But the point was that this is somebody who could not compare himself favorably with anybody. And listen to what he does and what, what he says. First of all, he stays in the back. He stays behind everybody. The Pharisee went right up front, stood up there, because that's how he viewed himself. He was in front of everybody. He was ahead of everybody. This tax collector doesn't put himself in front of anybody. He stays behind. And he did not feel worthy even to lift his eyes toward heaven. There was no presumptuous no presumption toward God. He didn't walk in and say, God, aren't I great? God, God, I deserve you to take care of me and to love me. He couldn't even lift his eyes toward heaven. And he beat his breast. This guy had a poor self-image. This guy didn't have a lot of confidence. He wasn't assertive. 
He, he, he didn't feel proud of himself. In fact, today, the diagnosis would be this man suffered from poor self-image. Poor or low self-esteem. And that's the root of his problems. If he could only lift up his self-esteem, then he wouldn't be such a scoundrel. He would treat others better. He, his life would come together. Again, that's the diagnosis. But that diagnosis is wrong. Last week, a physician who's in the body here was telling me about a little girl. This happened about a year ago. A little girl who uh, had a strep infection. The doctor she was taken to diagnosed it as a virus. And he basically said to the parents, take her home, put her to bed, give her plenty of liquids, give her Tylenol for the fever. He uh, treated the fever. Over the next couple of days, she got sicker and sicker. Uh, and they kept calling the doctor, and the doctor said, that's all right, just keep her in bed, keep her resting, keep forcing those liquids. On the fourth day, she went into convulsions and went unconscious. They rushed her to the hospital, but it was too late. That morning, she died. Now, that little girl didn't die of a strep infection. We have antibiotics that could help that. She died of a misdiagnosis. It was a senseless, pointless, horrible tragedy. People, this world is full of people all around us who are dying of a misdiagnosis. They're convinced that their problem is low self-esteem. And they're doing everything they can to, 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 to change that, to affect that. They're learning to be more assertive. They, they are, are, are learning positive self-talk, how to say affirming things to yourself. They are, are divesting their lives of toxic people, people who are damaging to their self-esteem. But they're still dying. You see, they may in fact be suffering from horribly low self-esteem. And it may be horribly painful. But that's the symptom, not the root cause. The root cause, the true diagnosis is sin. And sin has the effect of, uh, uh, of creating an insecurity inside of us that destroys our self-esteem. Again, the, the root cause, the true diagnosis is sin. The man in Jesus' parable cried out to God, Have mercy on me, the sinner. It doesn't say a sinner. He says the sinner. He doesn't put himself above anyone. He doesn't compare himself and say, Well, I'm better than this other tax gatherer. He doesn't try to weigh his good against his bad. Well, I did some good things here too, God. Now nah, he faces the fact that he is a sinner. And in his eyes, the sinner. And the term that he uses there in his cry to God when he says have mercy is a powerful term. It actually means to propitiate. Now, there's a word for you. That probably clears it all up in all of your minds. The word propitiate means to turn away anger. What he's saying is, God, I deserve your anger. You have every right to be furious with me, but please, God, turn that anger away. The most important thing for you to understand 
about sin is that it is primarily against God. And he is rightly angry. Now, there's a notion that is not popular today. I mean, God is angry. Uh, that's archaic. That's primitive. I mean, what are you going to do next? Uh, sacrifice a virgin in the volcano or something? The fact is, sin is against God. And it does make him angry. Our society wants to look at God as, as pure positiveness. Pure Tolerance And God is very positive, and He puts up with a lot. We ask, well, besides, what interest does God have in my sin? I mean, it's not involving Him. Psalm 51, when David is coming to, to face his sin of, of adultery and murder, he says something, I think, a little startling. Psalm 51, he says to God, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now David wasn't implying that he had not sinned against Uriah, whom he had murdered, or against Bathsheba, with whom he had adultery, or against his wives, who he betrayed, or, or, or against his soldiers, whom he compromised, or against his nation that he disgraced. Now he had sinned against all of these. But David was starting to realize that the heart of his sin was against God. And see, Psalm 51 is the powerful realization of that fact. In 2 Samuel 12, where Nathan has confronted David with his sin, Nathan finishes by saying, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. And I've delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have gladly given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord and do this evil? David's response when Nathan said that was to say, I have sinned against the Lord. I think that was the first time David ever thought of it in those terms. Sure, he had thought of what he had done to his friend Uriah and to his generals, and he had thought about what he had done here and there, but this was the first he realized that it was against the Lord. See, Nathan had just chronicled all of these blessings, all of this generosity to David, and nobody knew better how good God had been to David than David himself. And suddenly he realized that. And he realized what he had done in the face of that. Did you hear the yearning in God's voice? He, he's saying to David, David, I gave you everything. And if that hadn't been enough, I would have gladly given you more. I love you and I love to give to you. Why did you turn away and, and grab the one thing that would destroy you? You see, it's in God's heart to give. He loves to take care of us. He loves to lavish his gifts on us. And yet we act as if he was grudging. We act as if he doesn't want to give us everything. We act as if he's, if he's withholding from us for some, uh, some uh, 
a self-centered reason on his own part. And so we grab at the things that he denies us. As if the reason he denied them was, was hate. As if he didn't know what was best for us. As if he really didn't love us. Sin is a slap in the face of God's love. This is, this is what Adam and Eve did. You know, God placed them in the garden. He gave them everything. He surrounded them with beauty. He gave them food. He gave them each other. Then the serpent comes along and seduces them. The serpent starts to question God's goodness. He starts to imply and, and, and virtually come out and say, well, God's really not looking out for your interests. God's got his own selfish motive here. He's trying to keep you guys down. He knows if you do this thing that you'll be like him. He's really being selfish and self-protective in what he's telling you. You can't really trust God. Take things into your own hands. And they bought the lie that God isn't good, that God's heart isn't to give them everything, that God doesn't love them. Again, that is what sin is. It is distrust in God's love. It's believing, not, maybe not in our head, maybe never saying it out loud, but it's acting in a way that shows that we believe He really doesn't love us. And the effects of those actions are to frustrate God's joy in giving. It obstructs the, the greater gifts that He longs to lavish on us. Roy Hessian describes the effect of sin like this. He says, The greatest loser is God, the one whose heart was so different toward us from what we thought, the one who was planning such good, greater than we had imagined, whose purposes of love we have spoiled. It is a personal wound we inflict on God. It is ultimately, infinitely more cruel than even abusing a child, torturing a puppy. It is a heartless act toward the loving God of the universe. You see, God longs to lift your self-image. He longs to give you the, 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 the strongest self-esteem imaginable. God is a giver. But, he says, he who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, our true self-esteem does not come from trying to talk ourselves into uh, believing our own goodness. But rather it comes by exalting in the fact that we are loved. Self-esteem does not come from the illusion of our goodness, but from exalting in the fact that we are loved. Our attempts to kind of jack up our our self-esteem and our self-image by all of the means that we try simply obscure and obstruct the more profound, the the more solid self-esteem that He wants build in us, that He wants to give us, knowing that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, that the God of the universe loves us, that He is at work in us, giving us a, a, a profound confidence 
that He is that good, that He is that powerful, that He is that loving. See, self-esteem is a byproduct of facing our sin, that we slap God's face, that we sin against God, and then being forgiven of that sin. And by that process, beginning to see God for who He is, someone who, who can be trusted, someone who loves to give, someone who loves you. Now Luke follows up this, uh, that parable with a, with a wonderful incident about children that I re- think really drives home the parable. Starting verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The disciples are seeing all these important people who are trying to talk to Jesus. And all these babies are being brought to Jesus for him to touch. And the disciples are saying, now come on. He's got important people. He's got the Pharisees. He's He's got other leaders to deal with. He doesn't have time for these babies. And Jesus says, whoa, stop. Let the children come, because of these is the kingdom. And he said, in fact, unless you are willing to receive, and the key word here is to receive the kingdom like a little child, you can't even enter it. Now again, Jesus is coming after our self-image here. I mean, we're all adults in this room. We are important. We make our own decisions. But we can take care of ourselves. Again, this is part of our attempts to kind of bolster up our self-image, to feel good about ourselves. You know, I'm, I, I'm sufficient. I'm in charge. I, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm competent. I'm mature. Little babies are dependent and weak. They don't contribute anything to society. See, Jesus sees reality. He's telling us we can't let our confidence rest on our adultness. We we can't let our our self-esteem rest on our own ability and, and competence, sufficiency. In fact, it's the opposite. My security... My self-esteem rests on my willingness to receive love. This is different than telling myself that I deserve it. that, That somehow I deserve to be loved. No, you don't deserve God's love. But you can receive it. Now don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. First of all, he's not telling us to be childish. He's telling us to be childlike. If he was telling us to be childish, we would all have no trouble entering the kingdom of God. He's telling us to be childlike. Also, don't misunderstand that he's, he's saying somehow that, that children are more important than adults. They aren't. But they're not less important either, even though sometimes we act like that. Even in our own ministries of this church, at times we can act as if 
um, you know, if, if ministering to an adult, leading a Bible study, or somehow ministering in front of adults, that's important. That's real ministry. Well, teaching in a Sunday school class, or especially, maybe even worse, holding babies in the nursery, that's not quite so significant. That's kind of B-team work. Don't you believe it? In Jesus' estimation, in reality, that is A-team work. That is every bit as significant as any other ministry. Now, God calls each of us to specific ministry. And, and, and for one, it'll be this. For another, it'll be that. And we aren't to compare ourselves and say, well, I'm better because I have this ministry or that ministry. But the reality is there is no more important ministry than loving the children in this body. Jesus isn't saying children are more important or better. And he also isn't saying that children are innocent. Fact is, they are little sinners, just like you and I are big sinners. The difference, the thing that, that, that he is looking at in a baby, in an infant, is that a baby is willing to be loved, to receive love. Um, my favorite ministry, to be honest with you, in this church is the nursery. I love to go in there and pick up a crying baby. For some reason, I don't mind babies crying. In fact, I kind of like it. <laughs> I don't pinch them or anything like that. But, but to pick up a crying baby and just hold it. It lets you hug it. It lets you cuddle it and kiss it. Now, if I tried that with most of you, you would slap me and then report me. Several uh, years ago, David Roper did an experiment. He took a dollar bill, walked up to an adult, and tried to hand it to him. The guy went, wait a minute, what's that for? You don't owe me anything. He literally would not take it. And then David turned around and handed it to a child. The child said, thanks. Stuck it in his pocket and was out of there. Last week I wasn't preaching, so I helped in the Sunday school. I was in the five-year-olds. This one little boy walked up to me, lifted his shirt. His pants were unbuttoned, and he couldn't get them buttoned, and his zipper was halfway down. He didn't say anything to me. He didn't ask anything. He just walked up and lifted his shirt. But I, I figured it out, obviously. And I buttoned his pants for him, and I zipped his little zipper up, and he went off to color. Simple as that. There was no embarrassment. He had no shame. He just couldn't fasten his pants. And so he trusted that I, as his teacher, would help him. And quite honestly, I was, I felt profoundly honored and privileged that he would trust me like that. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. We all have needs. We are, in fact, whether we let ourselves know this or not, we are all weak. We don't have what we need for life and for relationships and it does no good. We don't get anywhere by trying to convince ourselves of the illusion that we are sufficient. You know, we're strong. We can take care of it all. We can't. Confidence and self-esteem built on a lie will breed a profound insecurity that will bear fruit in contempt for others. But if we will face the fact that we are needy, that we aren't sufficient, and freely, without shame, walk up to God with our shirt up. He's delighted. He loves to take care of us. He delights 
to give to us what we need. Now, most of us are capable of buttoning our own pants and zipping up our own zippers. And that's good. But we will never be sufficient in ourselves. We will never have everything we need within ourselves for life and for relationships. We will always have needs, both physically and spiritually. And if we refuse to let God love us, then we cannot even enter the kingdom of God. Now, one brief caveat on self-esteem Humbling ourselves before God does not mean we walk around moping and, and, and with our heads down and all apologetic. doesn't mean that we are fearful or mousy. It doesn't mean that we refuse to recognize or enjoy our successes. It doesn't mean we shrink back from challenges in life and in relationships and ministry. It simply means that we recognize that we are loved for who we are. We are loved because of what Jesus has done. We recognize that we are loved. And out of that love comes a profound confidence. We step boldly into problems. We, we face things in our lives. We, we take huge risks for God with every confidence that we're going to be successful. We... Uh, invest ourselves in our spouses and our children with every confidence that we will effectively love them. We get into things way over our heads. But all of this, not because we are so wise and strong and assertive and mature, but all of this because we have such an incredibly God, an incredible God who loves us so totally that He is capable of accomplishing it all, that we can trust Him. Perfect love casts out all fear, and you are loved perfectly. The strongest, boldest, freest, most courageous men and women I have ever known are women and men who know to their toes that God loves them. You and I, all of us here, are sinners. We have slapped God's kind and loving face over and over. We have no basis to feel superior to anyone on this globe. In fact, as we look at our heartlessness toward God, we should realize that there is no sin, no horror of which we are incapable. If you don't realize that, you've never seen Really, the blackness in your own heart. If you refuse to accept that, pray God's mercy. That when He shows you a little of it so that you'll see it, you don't do too much damage to the people around you. Pray instead that He would just open your eyes to reality so that you could face your sin. Because if you don't, you'll find that your prayers are really to yourself, not to the true God. But having faced your sin, you're then free to, to delight, to, to rejoice in the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ, who's our propitiation. And, and, and you can accept His daily cleansing of your continued sins. Not because you deny Him, not because they're not there, but because He loves you and will continue to forgive you. And accepting that daily cleansing is the first step in turning away from our refusal to let God love us. It's accepting His love, trusting that His heart is to give. 
to lavish upon you, letting Him love you. True self-esteem, healthy self-esteem does not come from our goodness. It comes from His goodness and our awareness of how much He loves us. And self-esteem that flows out of that recognition, that realization of His love frees us to come alongside our fellow sinners, not putting them down so that we can lift ourselves up, but loving them as fellow recipients of God's love. 1 John 1 talks about if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we confess our sins. And He's faithful. He's just to forgive all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We walk with God who is light. And we have fellowship with each other. That's God's design, is to give you a profound self-esteem that you are loved, that God loves you. And out of that confidence, out of that security, you can conduct yourself with boldness, with confidence, with with, uh, assertion. But not because you're so strong, but because you have such a great God who loves you. And rather than having to put others down to feel better, you come alongside your fellow sinners. There is no contempt. There is no sense of superiority. There is merely loving another whom the God that loves you also loves. God loves you intensely. Bless God by receiving that love. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, do thank you that you've given us your word. We do want to feel good about ourselves. We want to feel uh, confident, yet, Lord, we so often uh, seek to uh, drink out of cisterns that are broken and hold no water. We look for our own means to elevate ourselves, and as a result, we are crushed, we are humbled. So, Lord, we turn to you, to your uh, plan for our self-esteem, to learning who you are, to facing our sins, receiving your forgiveness, being cleansed from those sins, recognizing how much you love us and how powerful you are. You can protect us, how good you are. You delight to give to us, how wise you are. You work it all together. Lord, give us that security. Help us never to, to enter into our relationship with others to, to in any way bolster our self-esteem, but to simply love them humbly, weak, trembling, but confident in you, in your spirit. We just pray all these things in your name. Amen.